Today's scripture reading comes from Acts 5, verses 12 to 42. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported. We found this prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them and wondered what this would come to. And someone came and told him, look, the men whom you put in the prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet here you are, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at the right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses, so these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill him. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from those men and let them alone. For if this plan or this understanding is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. morning everyone um i'm pastor rich and it is good to see all of you today if this is your first time here i want to welcome you to our church um i'm so glad that you're worshiping with us today um right now as you just all heard uh we're going through the book of acts um and the storyline of acts where we find ourselves is that jesus who is god he came into history he lived without sin he died and then he rose from the dead and ascended back to heaven. And then he sent the Holy Spirit 
to indwell and empower his people to continue his mission of truth and grace. That's where we find ourselves today. But we see in our text uh, that not everyone is supportive of this mission. We see opposition. We see imprisonment, physical abuse. We see Christians enduring tremendous suffering. You know, last week we took a look at gospel courage. And today we're going to take a look at gospel suffering. And so we can't cover everything in this text today, but the three things we are going to look at is first, we're going to take a look at gospel gathering. We see people gathering. Two, we're going to take a look at gospel opposition. And then lastly, we're going to take a look at being worthy to suffer, worthy to suffer. So those are our three points. First, gospel gathering. Our passage begins with this fact, right? Uh, Due to the courageous preaching and teaching of the gospel, along with the fullness of the Holy Spirit, And we've seen this as we've studied the first chapters of Acts with also a praying life, worship, fellowship, love, sacrifice, and generosity of the early church. Verse 14 tells us that more than ever, because of all these things, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, the people gathered from around the towns of Jerusalem, right? It's easy to see this and be like, oh, that's just what they did. Uh, But this is a a reminder to all of us here today. Uh, Why do we gather and do what we do? I think it's because we all recognize that we need a greater power. We need a greater joy and purpose in our lives. We need a greater reality than the one we are experiencing. And you see, when we gather to worship Jesus, we are doing something remarkable. We're doing something supernatural. In other words, when we come together and ask the Holy Spirit to fill us, when we hear the gospel in the songs and in communion and in the preaching, the kingdom of God is breaking in to the present age. And it's healing sin and brokenness. That's what's happening. You know, you're not coming here and just listening to a lecture. You know, preaching is very, very different. It doesn't just uh, uh, transform the mind. It transforms the heart. And so right here, as a church, as a spiritual family, in the presence of God, this is the most powerful place that any person can be. Not this particular church. I may be biased, but right, any local church where there is God, where there is a family gathering, that's what's happening. Nothing less. It's a strength and refuge like no other. It's a peace and hope like no other. It's a power like no other. It's a community like no other. And Paul tells this to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. He tells them this. He says, we have this treasure. It's a treasure in jars of clay. It's a surpassing power belonging to God. What is this treasure? What might this treasure look like for us? What might this power uh, look like for us? Well, first, in a gathering like this around the gospel of Jesus, the first treasure that we experience is that sinners find forgiveness in the blood of Christ that washes our sin once and for all. Right? The book of Hebrews says that the death Christ died for sin was once and for all. So there's no need like the Old Testament for priests to continually offer up sacrifices for sin. 
In the same way, we don't live our lives right now to make up for past mistakes, to prove to ourselves that we are worthy, or to earn God's approval, or to earn each other's approval. You don't even have to prove to me because, I mean, I can't read your thoughts. I, I can't see your heart. I mean, you know, that's, that's not what we're doing. Only in Christ, our sin has been washed away once and for all. So we don't have to live out of fear and proving we live out of an overflowing joy, not obligation. Out of a response of what Jesus has done for us with a renewed love and purpose. You know, there's a very different motive if you are um, obeying your boss or your spouse or, you know, um, your kids are, kids are obeying their parents. There's a very different motive out of fear and approval and obligation. Oh, I got to do it. And joy and love right? Partnership. Secondly, in a gospel gathering like this, one of the powers we get to experience, right, for those who are tired and discouraged, for those who are heartbroken, for those who are fatigued physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, one of the things that we get to experience here, one of the things why we gather here is because we can find rest. What is rest? It's funny, uh, when I, I'm tired and I just want to veg and I, I'm like, ah, oh, I just watched Netflix, right? I'm watching two hours, maybe three, four, five. I don't know, I lose track of time, okay? So <laughs> watching it, it's done. Do I feel more restful? No, right? It's a distraction. It's a denial of reality. And so I go back and I'm still anxious. But in the presence of God, when you're gathered together, around Jesus, you actually find rest. Rest that carries over. Right? We realize that the things we're chasing in the world, security, comfort, acceptance, approval, pleasure, all of this, we realize when we, when we, when we sit down, we take time, and we, and we do business with Jesus, we realize by the whole, power of the Holy Spirit, it tells us that, man, all of that does not give us true rest. It's a distraction. We run and run and run. We work and work and work. We try to please and please and please, but we are still left with discontentment and dissatisfaction. But the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit reveals to us that nothing and no one in this world will be able to solve this problem of discontentment and dissatisfaction but Jesus. Only the supernatural, unconditional, unquestionable love of Jesus can give us the deep rest you're looking for the deep comfort you need, the deep love and acceptance and justification and approval you need. And lastly, you know, why do we gather here as we taste the powers of the age to come? We also gather here because we want to love people. We want to help people. We want to serve people. We want to welcome people and introduce them to Jesus, right? It's a spiritual outpost in the wilderness and, and it's a well in the desert, and we, we want people to experience this supernatural love, hope, and joy. And so when they come and when they see us, and they gather around the gospel, and they see this joy, and they see this love, and they see this peace from this gospel community, they'll be curious. They'll be like, this is different. I think God is here. The Roman Emperor Julian, um, writing in the 4th century, 
He was strongly against the progress of Christianity. He, it drove him nuts how this movement just kept growing, um, especially because it pulled people away from the Roman culture, the Roman gods, the, the whole Roman ecosystem, the whole Roman uh, economy that revolved around their religion. And this is what he said. He said the Christians have been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers. And through their care for the burial of the dead. It is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar. And that the godless Galileans, they called them godless because they, they didn't worship their gods. They worshiped Yahweh. Care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. He's like, man, I hate this movement, but they're killing us when it comes to love. <laughs> right? While those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render them. In other words, Julian is just echoing what Luke is saying. More than ever, believers are being added to the Lord. And people are gathering from the towns around Jerusalem. But not everyone gathered around the gospel. We see in our text that the high priests and the Sadducees were opposed to this. Why were they opposed to this? Well, this brings us to the second point, opposition to the gospel. Now, there are layers to this opposition, and uh, we can't look at all the layers, but we'll look at two. In the first layer, uh, verse 17 says that the high priest and the Sadducee party were filled with jealousy. Jealousy. Now, that's interesting, right? Well, why would they be jealous? It's childish. For the same reason why anyone would be jealous. Why are we jealous? Because we get envious, right? We want what other people want. So what were they envious of? Well, the Sadducees, as we will come to see, are envious of the power and the authority that the disciples had. Because the disciples are healing people. They're, 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 they're casting out demons, things that the Sadducees could not do. Many people are gathering towards this spiritual power. But rather than rejoicing in the healing of the sick and spiritually oppressed, the Sadducees are jealous. They're jealous of the spiritual impact that the disciples are having, right? Isn't that terrible? You know, it's like, stop healing people. <laughs> like, hey, stop, stop becoming friends. Like, here's the pro-sickness parade, right? More people need to be spiritually oppressed. More people need to keep going to hell and stop making new friends and stop being so happy, right? What, what's going on here? It's terrible. This tells us is that Christians will face opposition, not just because of the content of the gospel, but also because of its influence. Its ability to transform and change people's hearts, minds, lives, and communities. Paradoxically, the very reason why people would be attracted to it will also be the very reason why people will be opposed to it. I know of many stories, and, and maybe you do too, of salvation uh, where families, and mine included, are so concerned with the implications of conversion, the radical transformation and the impact of the gospel on someone's life. I remember when I was a youth pastor, uh, parents would come up to me and be like, hey, you know, you got to stop having these events. I'm like, why? Like, you're taking my kid out of Kumon, man. <laughs> you're killing me here, you know? The gospel's having an impact on their kids' lives. And they're being attracted. And they're realizing, right, there are more things to life than just 
worldly success. And so it can create a jealousy and opposition. And uh, the Sadducees were worried that the gospel was pulling people away from their culture, their religion, their source of influence and value, their hopes and dreams for maybe some of their children that are following the disciples and no longer them. And, and this jealousy and opposition is, is, is strictly, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's strictly between people who aren't Christian and who are Christian. That's, that's what this jealousy and opposition is. It's not like the jealousy and opposition between churches and denominations. That's a whole other topic, right? But in this text, the disciples are getting arrested. They're getting beaten and threatened. It's about Christians facing persecution. And um, I, 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 I'll share a personal experience of this. Um, you know, my mom and her side of the family came from a Confucian background. And in Confucian religion, it's very typical when someone passes to perform a ritual to the dead to send them off well to the afterlife, right? Uh, but when my mom became a Christian, she realized that this was conflicting with the teaching of scripture. Not everyone gets sent well off to the afterlife. There's only one way that gets sent well off to the afterlife. And this is being, she's getting convicted by the Holy Spirit, right? So she finally told her family that she could no longer do certain things at the burial site because she didn't believe that everyone made it to heaven. That's what she said. Now you can imagine uh, my mom is the youngest of six siblings. And so you can imagine how offensive this was to them. Uh, this ritual was a tremendous source of unity for them. And the, but the gospel had transformed my mom's mind and heart and life, and she was completely changed, completely changed. Uh, it was inedible. It just was a matter of time that the Holy Spirit in her would begin to step forward and challenge these structures and these authorities and values in her family. And then I became a Christian, and I stopped doing it. So they accused my mom's faith for changing me. And I vividly remember this as a senior in high school. My mom, uh, we're in Korea visiting family, and she would bravely lead me to the funeral site, and we'd lay down our flowers. We would pay our respects but we wouldn't participate in the other rituals, and so we'd walk over to the bench, and we would pray for our relatives. And the elders of the family would, would shame us and kind of warn anyone who would challenge their authority and anyone who wanted to become a Christian, but my mom, by the power of the Holy Spirit, she didn't flinch. I thought my mom was a gangster. Not a little gangster, but like an Asian youngest sibling gangster. She'd join the meals, though. She'd laugh with them. She'd serve them. She'd hug them. She'd buy them gifts and even invite them to church on Sundays when we were there. And by mom mom's prayers and her grace in the face of persecution and by God's compassion, through the years, many of her relatives have come to know Jesus. But it required an unflinching courage. It required a lot of suffering. A lot of tears, a lot of loneliness, a lot of shame. 
Um, it's amazing. She, my mom was a true evangelist, and, and she brought me even out to church, right? She saved me. And, and so even when we get together with our family members, they share these stories of how one by one they all came to Jesus, and they you know, all feel so bad for, for, for shaming my mom. Risen, faithful and courageous gospel living will inevitably cause opposition. Inevitably. There's just no way around it. Even when I was struggling with sort of publicly coming out as a Christian, right? I'm like, oh, man. So, like, I got to, like, stand up there and tell people I'm a Christian? You know? (laughs) And then, you know, like, can I tell people I'm just doing something? My youth pastor told me, Rich, if you want to please everyone, don't become a Christian. Right? So, friends, maybe it's your commitment to church and Sunday worship. Maybe your family or friends just dislike the fact that you are always unavailable Sunday worship or during community groups when they meet. I know from, uh, before my dad started coming out of church, whenever his birthday will land on Sunday, he's like, hey, can we get brunch? I'm like, dad, I'm a pastor. He's like, <sighs> he's like oh. I'm like, we can get dinner. He's like, I don't want to get dinner. <laughs> uh, I'm like, sorry, man. Maybe it's your financial giving. And your time spent on missions, uh, serving others and serving the church. There's jealousy and opposition from others over the gospel influence in your life. And, but you must obey God rather than men. And we know, you know, I'm trying to make this passage relevant to us, but we know that there are brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who are facing the exact things that the disciples faced. Right? They're getting imprisoned. They're getting beaten. They're dying for the faith. So we can't look at this text as if, you know, it's, it's ancient, even though it is, but that it's not relevant and somehow relativize it to our experience. Like, you know, like, you know, you're not suffering for the gospel, like if you got let go from work because, you know, you were lazy. You know, that's not gospel suffering, right? We can't forget this text. We can't forget the literal experience of this text that our Brothers and sisters who are sacrificing today. So we got to pray for them. we got to support them. we got to find missionaries that we can support and encourage and pray for. But there's a second layer of opposition the disciples faced. Uh, the second reason why the high priests and the Sadducees are opposing the disciples is because the disciples are taking the gospel message and just very courageously, very directly, very bluntly just applying it to them. What's the gospel message? Well, verse, nine, uh, uh, verse 28 says this, right? We str- they, the Sadducees say, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, Jesus' name. Stop teaching about Jesus. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you tend to bring this bl- man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, right? He keeps holding them accountable, right? He's... He's holding them accountable for their sin. What's the, what's the gospel message, right? Jesus died for what? Your sin, right? He's saying, by hanging him on a tree, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give what? Repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And then it says, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them, right? Right, I mean, makes sense. You try to, sometimes when you try to hold someone accountable of their sin, they're, they're going to get enraged. We get enraged. You and I get enraged, right? 
remember, we talked about this. Like, when we come to the scriptures, we never want to put ourselves on the moral high ground, right? It's funny because the religious leaders killed Jesus for this exact same reason. He's, woe to you Pharisees, woe to you scribes, right? What he, was, he, was, he was trying to continually call them out to their sin of what? Their self-righteousness and hypocrisy and, and their refusal to repent, right? That's a mouthful. The sin of self-righteousness, hypocrisy, and refusal to repent, right? With those words, you know that the gloves are coming off. You know what I'm saying? We're past the coffee and the name tags here at Risen, right? If this is your first time, you know, we're now sort of past the niceties and fluff. We're getting to the meat of it. And what's fascinating is that the Greek word for repent, this word repent, Luke, sorry, Luke uses it more than any other New Testament author. If you look at all the sermons that the disciples preach in the book of Acts, it always ends with one application, repent, right? Repent. You know, Luke was the uh, most likely the only non-Jewish apostle. And he wrote most of the New Testament by sheer words. Paul wrote the most letters, but Luke wrote most of it by sheer words. And if you read the book of Acts, Luke was actually always with Paul, right? He's probably taking care of him as a doctor, right? Helping him out. Be like, oh, Paul, you're poor. Well, let me, let me do some medical work. Here you go. <laughs> That's what he's doing. What this means is that Luke didn't grow up with a Christian upbringing. He grew up in a non-Christian home. He had completely different assumptions. So he had to actually think through every element of the gospel because it was going to cost him tremendously. This word repent was the linchpin. Luke understood how crucial this word was to real Christianity. He wasn't just going to go through the motions. He knew exactly what Jesus was asking of him. He knew that following Jesus meant that he had to leave his entire Roman culture, the temples, the gods, his own authority, his own way of living, he had to leave all of that. He had to tell his family, who knows if he had, you know, how much, how big his family was. He knew exactly what God was asking of him, and he knew exactly what God is asking of every single one of us. Repentance was Luke's litmus test of true faith, right? I remember one of my small group leaders at my church in college. Before every small group session, he would always start by asking the same question right out of the gate. And he'd go, all right, I'm going to ask this question again, guys. Do you believe you're a sinner in desperate need of the mercy and forgiveness of God? Because if we can't establish that, we're going to spend a lot of time going nowhere. Right? We're going to spend a lot of time just talking about other people, gossiping, complaining, not repenting, not forgiving. Why would that be the first immediate question that my small group leader asked? Well, God could have done anything. But God's singular answer to the brokenness, sin, and pain, and death in the world was to send Jesus to save and redeem and recreate us. He could have done anything. But the singular thing he did was he sent Jesus to die on the cross, and then he rose him from the dead. That's it. He could have saved and fixed all of our brokenness, right? All the pain, he could have prevented all that, but the singular thing he did was he sent Jesus to die for our sins. And the only way that God does this is 
by reconciling us to him, which the Bible says is the result of our own sin and not anyone else's sin. And the way to be reconciled to God, which we need because he is the source of life and power and joy, is to confess our inability to love him with all our heart, mind, and soul. If we can't do that, if we can't acknowledge our sin against God, the ultimate judge, the ultimate justice, he sees all your thoughts. He knows your heart. If we can't do that, then we cannot receive the forgiveness, grace, love, power, and spirit of Christ. That's how it comes. That's how it comes. When we humble ourselves, when we do business with Jesus, when we come to the bloodstained cross for our sins, that is where we're going to find his love and his grace. Everything, everything, every spiritual fruit, every blessing of God comes through repentance. If we don't do that, friends, if we can't do that, then we'll spend a lot of time going nowhere. And Luke knows that. Luke knows that. He's a smart guy. Martin Luther's famous words of his 95 thesis was, all of life is repentance. John Calvin said, repentance is not merely the start of the Christian life. He says, it is the Christian life. And I love how in verse 31, Peter says, what does he say? He said, Jesus gives you repentance. What does that mean? It means that repentance is a gift. It's it's a gift to repent. It's not a burden. It's not a shame. It's not an offense. Because what God does in repentance is by the work of the Holy Spirit, he is turning you back to him. And in the face of our worst, the face of our worst, our most ugliest, God loves you still. It's a gift and he gives you grace. It's a beautiful turning. You see, it's a restorative turning. It's supernatural healing And I pray that you recognize it, friends, that repentance is a gift. So church, are you willing to live a life of repentance? Man, this this past uh, two weeks, I didn't get this till like, I think this week. I was like, oh, this is about repentance again. And then I was like, okay, I got to really deal with this. And, and, you know, God really, like, you know, I'm always, as a pastor, I'm thinking about, you know, you know, uh, oh yeah, okay, how can I make this sermon better? How can I make this meeting better? You know, how can I lead better? How can I be a better communicator? How can I be a better listener? And then God's like, well, I don't care about all that. You just need to repent. <laughs> like you're trying to do all these things, but you're so terrible at it. <laughs> if you come to me and humbly repent, hey, you'll get the Holy Spirit to actually do some of these things. This was their foundation. This was the core of the early church's spirituality, their teaching and their community, their community. Right? What's the core of our community? Repentance. Throughout the history of the church, it's always been at the heart of the reforming of the church and the recentering of it, right? of, of the church's teaching and life and mission. Is, it's always been repentance. This brings us to the last point, being worthy to suffer. Towards the end of the passage, the council forbids the disciples to teach Christ, and the dispi- disciples respond by saying, we must obey God rather than men. I love that. I love that, right? Like, they don't go too deep into it. <laughs> it's like, no, we're going to obey God rather than you guys. And I'm not, why? I'm, we're not going to explain to you why. <laughs> like, and this enraged them. And they would have killed them if it wasn't for one Pharisee named Gamaliel. And Luke records this event in such detail uh, because even Gamaliel references other historical f- 
figures like Theodos and Judas the Galilean. And theologians credit this to the fact that this is a real historical account. Why else would Luke record, oh, Gamaliel's there, and he's referencing Theodos, and he's referencing Judas? It's because Gamaliel was actually there, and he was actually referencing Theodos and Judas. And so Christianity is not just a religion, right? It's not just a spirituality. It's, it's, it's not detached from historicity. Jesus was born, he lived, he died, he did these things. Jesus appeared to the disciples, he gave them mission, he gave them purse. This is historical. And so Gamaliel, as the voice of reason, he convinces uh, the rest of the council to not kill the disciples, to wait it out, because Gamaliel has not completely ruled out that the disciples are doing the work of God. Right? I think this is a really great insight, actually. Because I think some of us were so quick to judge um, but sometimes we may not know if God is in something or not. You know? They take his advice, but not without beating the disciples and warning them again to not teach about Jesus. And then verse 41 tells us that the disciples left the presence of the council doing what? Rejoicing. They were rejoicing that they were what? Counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Right? How many of us, when we become a Christian, we're like, man, I want to suffer dishonor for the name. That's what I want to do. I don't know be on the praise band. <laughs> I don't need to be a CG leader. No, I don't need any of that. I don't want to, you know, uh, be counted worthy to serve Jesus in glory and leadership. No, I want to I suffer dishonor. Get me in the most suffering position, Pastor Rich. What is that, right? No one ever comes to me for that. Worthy to suffer. Worthy to suffer. Here's the big idea. Church, Jesus took a beating for you. Literally. He was flogged. He was crucified. And he took it so that our sins would die with him. He suffered so that you and I wouldn't ultimately suffer before God's judgment in the face of death. Why? Because salvation from sin and death was more worthy to him, right, than his own comfort, than his own glory. Suffering for us was worthy for him. He counted our souls worthy of suffering. I was, uh, man, I was just overwhelmed with this concept, this teaching. Counting it worthy to suffer. That's how the kingdom of God comes. Through the suffering of Christ. Right? Right? And then Jesus ascends and he says, you're going to be my witnesses. Witnesses to what? Luke always says it. Witnesses to the suffering of Christ. How are we going to witness that? Just with our words? No, he says, with your actions. And so just as Jesus suffered, we as Team Jesus, we suffer with him. We count it worthy to be on the team of Jesus who counted us worthy for him to suffer. 
We don't implement our own game plan. We don't go Old Testament. We go New Testament. <laughs> we don't go backwards. Right? <laughs> we go forwards. And just as we trust in Jesus' suffering for our salvation, we trust in our own suffering. We don't try to take control. We trust in our own suffering for the salvation of others. And that is a worthy suffering. The book of Romans says that we can rejoice in our sufferings too and explains why. It says because suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us, right? In other words, what Paul is saying, look, I know right now all you can see is your suffering and you just want this suffering to get out and you will do anything if it means even to trample on people to remove this suffering. But you must understand that suffering produces something, that there is a greater purpose that you cannot see right now for your suffering. James puts it this way, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, not steadfastness, steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Man, uh, suffering to me seems pointless, always just pointless. Like, this is a waste of time. <laughs> but in God's love, it's wise. He's forming in a spiritual character of steadfastness. What is steadfastness? It's an unwavering faith. Faith that is firm in one direction. Which, without steadfastness, our faith is stunted. And we will constantly fall back into a spirit of hopelessness. But steadfastness endures the valley of suffering to the redemptive side of God's love poured into your heart through the Holy Spirit, which does not put you to shame. You know, when you first become a Christian, right, Jesus relieves your suffering. The Holy Spirit fills uh, your despair with love, your loss with comfort, your sin and your brokenness with strength. And we thank Jesus for taking the beating for us. But we're not told, by the way, you're going to have to take a beating for Jesus too. That's in the fine print. <laughs> Got to look at that stuff before you sign. Um, it's too late now, right, if you're following Jesus. But it's in the Bible a lot. And we tend to avoid these verses a lot. And so I think that's why many believers were really ill-equipped for what is truly the Christian life because all we're told is that God loves you, he'll bless you, and he has a plan for you. We're not told that not everybody is going to love you. Not everybody is going to bless you. And you may get treated like Jesus got treated. But because we're so afraid to suffer like Jesus... We don't grow. Our character remains small. We're constantly giving up in the face of suffering. So we end up with despair. 
But the only way to live a resurrected life like Jesus is to endure suffering like Jesus. You can't become purified gold without going through the fire. Suffering for the sake of testing, for the sake of refinement. Friends, suffering is the inevitable journey for every Christian and every local church because comfortable Christians don't make good Christians. So this is my prayer for our church. It really is. You know, that we would know how to suffer well for Jesus because this is the will of God and and this is the greatest testimony that our faith can offer. Now let me close with this. Right after the disciples take a beating, it says that every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Beautiful. They just got imprisoned. They just got beaten. They just got publicly shamed in such an honor and shame society like the Middle East. What's happening? You go to their gatherings, what are they doing? Talking about Jesus. Hey guys, we're not supposed to do this. You walk into their homes, into their CGs, what are they talking about Jesus? You walk into their ministry meetings, what are they talking about Jesus? You walk into their leader meetings, what are they talking about Jesus? They just can't stop talking about Jesus. Jesus is just so beautiful to them. So meaningful. So friends, when we're suffering for Jesus, which I know every single one of us are, you need to get together. You need to get together because you need prayer. You need encouragement. You need to worship. You need to hear the redemptive hope of the gospel from someone else. Especially when there's opposition against God's people, we need to be together. You need to support one another because that's what the people of God do and that's what the people of God did. See, every single person in the early church was going through something different. They were all suffering in their own way. Not everyone was suffering like the disciples. But the answer was the same. It was always Jesus. And similarly, every single person in our church is going through something different. And it is my greatest pain that I cannot know it and be there for you. But the Holy Spirit can. Every second, every thought, every pain. And the answer is the same, it's Jesus. So we need to point each other to that. We need to pray Jesus over each other. We need to speak Jesus into our gatherings, into our circumstances, into our emotions, into our suffering. Because when we do that, when we do that, when we, when we suffer well, that's when the Holy Spirit's gonna bless you. He's gonna produce supernatural love and character in you. And that love will not push you, put you to shame. What's the opposite of shame? It's honor. It's praise. It's glory. It's not our glory. It's a better glory. It's the glory of the suffering of Christ for you. So come and get it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
we come before you. And we, we come to a text like this. We are so thankful that your disciples did not hold back and they proclaimed your message with truth and lives of grace. And this historical account has been recorded for us and it has been passed down to us not as something that is removed from us, something that is extremely relevant to us. That there is something about suffering that is essential to not just the Christian life, but to the thriving as a Christian, to the thriving as a church. So much of the American church has been infused with the comfort of the American gospel. We should have it our way all the time. We should customize our lives the way we want it. We should get and eliminate any kind of suffering and weakness that is in our lives. But that is not what you do. That is not reality. That is a false gospel. That is an illusion that is chasing after the wind. So I pray for every single one of us here that we would stop chasing after the wind and that you would fill our hearts and we'd recognize that, that this Oh my gosh, this, this, this gift of repentance. From here is where revival is. Here is where resurrection lives. Here is where there is a reawakening. That from here, we can go into our workplace, into our marriages, into our families, into our lives, and we can live out of joy and witness because we don't have to chase after the wind no more. No, the wind has stopped. The Spirit has breathed upon us. So there's a different wind we live in regard to. We're not chasing it. It's blowing us. And it's breathing upon people. And people are gathering. So Father, do what we cannot do in us. By the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray, we ask you, we hold you to your promise because you say when you come to us and confess our sins, you will forgive us and you will fill us with the Holy Spirit. So we ask that you would fulfill your promises. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.